0: The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. The so-called mystery of Stradivari has long confused me. How is it possible, I wondered, that with all our modern scientific understanding and technological sophistication, we can't seem to find a way to make better violins than some guy who was born before the midpoint of the 17th century? Well, suffice it to say that I'm not the only person who's been perplexed by this. Joseph Curtin, award-winning violin maker and acoustician, has been trying to penetrate the secret of Stradivari for years. So much so that he and his colleagues developed a series of rigorous, innovative, and highly revealing experiments in an attempt to finally determine what exactly is going on once and for all. So, what's the secret? Well, stay tuned. You're from Toronto,
1: actually. I am from Toronto, born in Toronto. Right. Raised there till I was 10, then we moved to England. You can't really be from Toronto
0: if you say Toronto. Toronto. <laughs> right. I mean, you, <laughs> you, there's a credibility gap right there, I think. Toronto. Do I say Toronto? You just did. You said Toronto, I'm sure. I mean, we have it on film. There we go. No. <laughs> okay. Interview over. <laughs> He's a fraud. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. You were, you were right you were, until you were 10, you said.
1: Yes. Then my, my family moved to England. I was about, for five years, and then we came back to Canada.
0: Right, so I read that, but where, where in England were you? London. Oh, you were in London? North
1: London, Finchley. Okay. Oh, really? Do you know London? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, went to English Catholic grammar school, which was a low point in my wow. life. Wow.
0: But you survived that.
1: Yeah, and I actually took up violin there, so I'm ever grateful for that.
0: Right. So that, was, that leads on to my, uh, the big question, which is, how does one actually become a luthier? How does, how does that happen? And uh, my understanding is, in your case, it, it, it happened, at least according to you, in a somewhat different way than it, that it, that it happens to most. But maybe there is no general.
1: Theory. I think, well, it, generally speaking, I'd say it would be circuitously. Um, it's not a kind of a career track that your college counselor is going to give you or your high school
0: right.
1: counselor. Um, I would have never dreamed, um, well, when I was a boy, that I would ended up playing the violin. It just, music instruments, music didn't really cross my mind. Nor would I have dreamed that trying to be a violinist would ever end up as a violin maker. <laughs> so, right. so, but um, one gets exposed to these, these worlds, and you start to see they're interesting. I fell in love with violin playing. It, 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 um, but I started rather late, and I didn't have good teaching. So it ended up being very frustrating.
0: And um, So this was at that school you said that you started? That's I where I
1: started. Start? Then, then we moved back to Canada. I played in the high school orchestra. We didn't get private instruction. Um, mm. Went to university and started getting private lessons, and um, of course I improved. But then I was told to quit by a famous violinist, and that was a really who th- told? Who, are you allowed to say? La- Laurent Fenivesh, who was the, the mm. one of the best violinists in Canada, the most sought after teachers anyway. A devastating experience. Told you to quit. That's pretty harsh. Yeah, he pr- invited me to his master class in Banff. <laughs>
0: He invited you and I told you to go. <laughs> yeah, it
1: a particularly painful. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I could see his point, though. I, I, I mean, he could, he, here he sees this 19-year-old who obviously loves it but is technically ill-equipped. Um, and I, um, I went into um, kind of part-time philosophy music um, and it was really struggling. It was really very difficult to be told you can't do the one thing that you want to do. Um, but then I, um, I kept taking violin lessons. I, one summer I'd been working as a busboy all summer and I thought, I'll buy a violin. And I went trying to get a better violin. That's when I got, it, got the, the name of Otto Erdesh, who's a new violin maker in Toronto then, right. and his wife Rivka, who's an Israeli viola soloist. And um, I visited there and ended up staying for several years. She, she taught me viola. Y- yeah, you
0: switched to viola, right? Yes, uh,
1: um, and then... Then I kind of realized for myself that if you, you know, if you want to be a French poet, it's not enough to be poetic. You've got to speak French, <laughs> <And> that was <laughs> that was the trouble with um, me and music. It's not internalized in the way. And now that I um, know many, you know, top musicians and how their kids are brought up, you know, it, it's a kind of a, a, it's a mother tongue almost. And um, I,
0: I, I can't really carry a tune. Um, is this because is this something innate you think, based upon your experience uh, now, or is this something that that would have been different had you had better teaching or different teaching at an earlier age, or had you started at an
1: earlier oh, age? I, th- I think if I'd started at an earlier age and I loved doing it, I would have progressed to whatever um, level I, I could have reached. I, I don't. And um, what they're learning more and more about the, the brain's plasticity is that. Um, you can do that at any age. Indeed, um, a couple of years ago, I got interested in practicing again and started taking lessons. But it was only it was only because meeting Otto that I saw, oh, here is someone who's making their living at it. And I think um, I was interested, and he saw that, and he saw it in the kind of questions I asked and the things I noticed. I mean, how do you tell whether someone can do something if they're interested? Um, I um, so I think I, I would hang out with them and ask questions and notice things or not notice things. And um, after a particularly discouraging summer, I'd been playing chamber music and really feeling, I, 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 I'm not going to do this professionally, um, I, I w- and really deciding I should ask Otto if he would teach me. Um, the very day I was going to ask him, he just suggested to me it was almost <laughs> spooky, his timing. I guess he sensed that it was right. um, it would be a good path. and. Um, Back then I thought violin making, who'd want to be stuck up in a room with a bunch of sawdust the rest of your life, you know? It didn't seem romantic at all. Or, but then once I started it and it was of course completely in, um, where, where violin playing seemed like this labyrinth and I, I didn't quite know how to get through. I couldn't really tell how good I was, you know, I couldn't really hear right. properly island making. Well, I can see. I can figure right. out. It's a roadmap. To, to yeah, I mean, it was just like an open door. I mean, it would be really hard to learn it, but I didn't see any obstacle in the way, any impenetrable barrier. So I took to it. and Otto was very encouraging, and you know, um, that that made all the difference. if if he, he had, if I hadn't met him, I can't imagine quite what I what I would have done. A friend of mine. Told me he took, when he was trying to figure out what to do, he took, went to a career counseling service in Chicago where they give you batteries of tests for three days and figure out. And they, um, they thought he should be an engineer and he'd never thought about that really. He'd talked about private detective and (laughs) various things. And so he's now been an engineer for many years and still does a lot of other things. But, but what, what I remember him telling me was that, um, they told him that if you have a gift in a particular area and a job in another area, you're you're not likely to be satisfied. I mean, you might have it as a hobby, but you want a a career that overlaps the things that you're good at or the things that you're interested in or passionate about. And the amazing thing about violin making for me is if I look back at my life, the things I've been truly passionate about is making things Science, I always imagine I'd be an electrical engineer or something like that. So um, then, then music and, and, and art, the visual arts, so really all, all these myself. playgrounds. Yeah, so um, I think of someone, myself, as someone who sort of flits between projects. I don't tend to finish things, I tend to keep coming back on them. And with violin making, if I get bored at the workbench, I can. Right. Go up and do some acoustical measurements. You know, but you do finish do the writing. violins. I mean, if I'm going if yes. I'm a
0: commission a violin from you, it it, it well, does get finished at some point, right?
1: Yes, that's that's <laughs> been the the saving thing about it. I I pretty much work on commission and I have to have it done and and that's that. But it, it's it's an excellent framework. Um, um, it's an interesting concept. I think it's from the Myers Briggs personality test. Remember, closer or yeah. finisher they say, and I and I it's one of the ones I realize. Okay, I don't tend to finish things where my wife is an incredible finisher, and I think
0: couples may be <laughs> drawn together. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's attracting and so forth.
1: Yeah, I think it, it balanced things out. People who finish things quickly maybe should have done some revising, and people who never finish things <laughs> right, should have <laughs> It certainly makes things them. easier for Christmas shopping. I right. had <laughs> <go in> <laughs> the damn thing, Joseph. <laughs> 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 but I, I, I've had violins back that were finished years ago, and for an adjustment, and I'll revarnish them. I mean, I just. Nothing ever feels done. And, and the same with writing. I, I tend to keep revising. And, but as long as there's deadlines where things officially go out in the world, I, I don't think of it as a bad quality. It just needs to be mm. put so, under control.
0: So, when, so w- when you were being mentored with, by, by Otto when he was mm-hmm. showing you this, was, first of all, was, were you his first student? Uh, or, or had he been doing this sort of thing regularly? Do you have a sense as <laughs> yeah, to... Yeah.
1: I think he'd had an, a,
0: apprentices back when he lived in New York. Um, I don't know...
1: I don't know of any violin makers who taught. Who, who? I don't know of anyone working in violin making who studied with him before I did. There, there may be, um, but there's a couple of other people. John Newton, the Canadian violin maker, was studying at the same time, and he's been a successful violin maker and is still working. Okay. Um, and he and but I'm sure. Well, Otto certainly influenced, the, you know, my generation of Canadian violin makers. That's <laughs> not to say much, as you know, maybe. Right. half dozen of us and um, just as Rivka made a big impact on viola playing in Toronto while she was there.
0: Okay. So, so, so you, you, you develop the skills mm-hmm. um, and then you want to go out in the world as a, uh, to make your living as a violin maker mm-hmm. and I could imagine again not knowing anything about this I could imagine that's awfully difficult to get started to bootstrap yourself. You're young, you, you have some skills but you're certainly you don't have a name by definition. You're just starting. Yes. How do you, how does that work? How do you, how do you get out there and start getting a name, start getting commissions, start being able to move forwards uh, when you're once you once you're you know you're, you're brand new at the, in the field?
1: Um, I, I, it, I'll tell you the, 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 what I now think of as an, a standard route: you study at a violin making school, or and then you go to a restoration shop and you you, know, you apprentice there and learn to work with old instruments, and then you maybe set up on your own. or um, I um, Otto was an informal person Um, I worked with him and then remember I finished my first instrument at his place and then for some reason it was really quite rude I decided I needed to make my own entirely on my own and I disappeared without calling and Hmm. finished another instrument it didn't occur to me that why, that's not <laughs> an appropriate thing to do. But, you know, I, I, I so I made my second one entirely on my own, and then I brought it back. And then after that, I would go back and forth a lot. And then what what, what did I do? I worked in a pizza restaurant. I did all the usual things you need to do. You scrape by. I lived in a... From my apartment across from a lunatic
0: Right, asylum. but but to get to get a reputation, which you eventually got, you did ju- you just you had, did you get one big client to, to move forwards, or did you just get starting making little inroads? Do you remember how that? I, I sold a, a, a few around Toronto, but
1: um, I got some contacts in New York somehow, um, and um, my girlfriend at the time was living in New York. She was a violinist, and that helped. And so actually, I started selling instruments in in, in New York quite early on and um, it got me it got me through i, I don't know you know right. you sell a violin back then it was for a few thousand dollars you know that that could last a few months so it wasn't bad but i, I think I, my my father co-signed a loan for me back in back mm-hmm. then for 5000 and i i like to say i only paid it off last year <laughs> 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 you keep build, build, right. building up a credit rating i guess but right
0: but I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of the market. Not not so much your person. Obviously, you're young, you're struggling, you're doing what yeah. you can to get by. I, I, I get all that. But uh, again, uh, maybe I'm missing something. But for me, I, I have a sense of okay, who's going to buy a custom-made violin? Ah. there are going to be people who are. If, if I'm a, if I'm just a normal music student, if I'm even a, a reasonably accomplished violinist, mm-hmm. I'm pr- I'm thinking. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm probably not going to go buy a custom-made violin. This is my thinking. Maybe I'm completely off base here. So I'm thinking the market may not, is probably not huge for people who were buying custom-made violins as opposed to going into a violin store and buying them. Is that, is that right or is that not right? Um, well, there's, there's two questions in there, really. There's
1: the market for new violins versus old violins. And back when I was starting, um, I think my teacher, Otto, and uh, a few other makers, an American maker called Sergio Paris, and, they were the first people really to be making their living as makers rather than makers, repairers, or makers and dealers. In in, the, in a great deal of time, so they kind of opened up this notion of selling new instruments to good players for a living. Um, I didn't really get started until I met Greg Alf in Italy. We came back here in 1985, started Curtin and Alf, our company, right. and then then there were two minds, and and we complemented each other r- rather well. Um, you had some good market instincts. I, I had kind of anti-market <laughs> instincts. <laughs> you didn't explode, did you? If you get a market person and an anti-market person? <laughs> <laughs> right. But I remember before, I remember the first time going on, a trying to sell a, a violin, going to a, my old university and showing it around. And a friend of my sister who was a, who was a player there said, I didn't understand. Was that actually for sale, that instrument? <laughs> and you sort of have a notion to point out everything wrong with it. You know, so that they... Th- don't think you don't notice. That. Right. <laughs> so there's all the whole psychology of presenting yourself in the world, and it takes a while to build up confidence. But Greg and I together could, could do more than either of us could do individually, and so we started a firm, and um, Ruggiero Ricci, a world-famous violinist, was living in Ann Arbor, and he, um, some of his students bought instruments, and he commissioned a copy of his Guarneri del Gesù. Well, that, was, that was really a breakthrough. And then he let us use his photo as an advertisement and we did these full-page ads in the Strad, which hadn't really been done much before then by makers. And then
0: the phone started ringing. But it was, it was pretty touch-and-go for a while. So this idea, I wanted to move to this idea of, um, of, the, of the great 17th, 18th century violins. Mm-hmm. The, um, you've made some copies, as, uh, as you said, um, and you've also done an awful lot of research Uh, from an acoustical perspective about this and one of the reasons I was so keen to talk to you as I mentioned earlier is that not only are you an extremely well-established luthier, but you also have done a lot of research in acoustics, a lot of uh, research in terms of uh, seeking innovative products, Mm -hmm. um, new types of violins, new aspects, new sounds, what Mm -hmm. have you, new materials. And I'd like to get to that a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. But first, I want to go, go right to the cliche. Okay. Um, and uh, this is something which I guess I've thought of, a lot of people have thought of, again, who are certainly aren't an expert. Here yeah. we have this notion of the ultimate violin, the Stradivarius, if mm-hmm. you will. And somehow these guys in the 17, whatever it is, 30s, 20s, we're able Is that right? Am I, am I got the right time here? Absolutely. We're, we're able to produce these violins of unparalleled quality and unparalleled resonance and sound that hasn't been able to be duplicated since. So this is the claim, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is in the public consciousness. This is the claim that this is somehow the apex. And, and in some bizarre way, uh, notwithstanding all the modern technological advances that we mm-hmm. have today, we weren't able to, uh, we haven't been able to, to replicate this sound, which strikes me as somebody uh who has a scientific background as just odd that we w- mm-hmm. that we wouldn't be able to yes. do that and 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 so what's that all about is that true first of all what do we know about is the claim true that this was this was absolutely the the best possible type of violin at this time it w- hasn't been able to be replicated since and uh so again excuse me for sinking into the cliche but this is the this is this is the this is the hook that I certainly sure. have when I think about these things as a complete non-specialist.
1: Yes. And that's very embedded in in the culture, the, the secret of Stradivari. Right. And as soon as you start looking at that from a scientific point of view or, or any serious point of view, it, you know, the, what is the secret of Stradivari? It starts subdividing into a, many, many different questions. Um, now, is, is Stradivari the greatest violin maker who ever lived? I would probably say he was so far. Um, the, the unknown genius is the person who made the first violin. It was probably Andrea Amati. Hmm. Um, and suddenly from nowhere comes this fully developed instrument. I mean, Strad didn't design it. Let's say Andrea Amati, I don't know where scholarship will end up, there's not a lot known, but out of his shop were coming fully formed instruments that didn't really change much.
0: When was that? When that
1: was in the 1500s. Yeah. So by the time Stradivari was making them in the, in, you know, the late 1600s and Guarneri, his great contemporary in the um, 1700s, it had already been going on for a couple hundred years. What they did is refine it and take it in a certain direction, in a direction that went along with the way music was developing, in a direction that um, provided more... Um, more of what players want, more power. They did things to the design. They lowered the arching, um, a f- changed the number of physical parameters that I think made it an instrument that's more suitable for the emerging repertoire. Now I'm, I'm not a person knowledgeable about violin making history. Hmm. Um, but I think what a lot of people don't realize is that if you were to take a violin straight from Stradivari's workshop with a bow from the time, most of the current repertoire would be unplayable and it would probably be, you know, inaudible. I mean, really, (laughs) yes, the, the Stradivari, any old instrument we know is, is really a re-engineered, um, object. Um, and it's, it's not just the restoration. I mean, which is an important part to fix all the cracks and everything else. Um, it, it's, it's a different instrument. The setup is so different. The bridge, um, the the bass bar, a lot of them have been regraduated, made thinner. Right. And this has profound effects upon the sound, um, but that's completely ignored in the common notion. It's this sort, sort of heroic idea of of this instrument coming out mysteriously out of nowhere in the early fifteen hundred, and then brought to perfection by Stradivari and Guarneri and then and
0: they've gone into decline ever since.
1: Yes, uh, but um, I, I, it's something I want to research more. Who actually started developing it? You know, they started putting longer fingerboards because people wanted to go higher up. They right. put the neck in differently. That various people are figuring out exactly what was going on in terms of who did what when. But as far as I'm concerned, they're equally important contributions. They just don't have that kind of glamorous...
0: Story to them, right? So but there's still, there's still the question of the sound, right? Again, from the man on the street, I say, well, "There's this famous violinist. What kind of violin does he, does he or she play?" There's world-class violinist. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are an awful lot of them that are, that are playing Stradivarius, right? Yes, and and, and, and many and so forth.
1: fantastic players will will say that you know, old Italian sound is 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 the best, and
0: it's what we're all looking for. But what is? How do you characterize that scientifically? How do you well, characterize this that? Old <laughs> this Italian is
1: very very interesting. If you think of Stradivari is kind of almost a brand. It's instantly recognizable. It's highly esteemed. You know, Stradivari, right. old violins, great sound. Right. Um, now, I think about other kind of iconic, um, think of Tom Waits. Right. You can probably hear his voice or, yeah. or think of, um, think of your, your father's voice, you'll immediately recognize something, um, you know, Frank Sinatra. Now think of the sound of a Stradivari. What comes yeah. to your mind?
0: Uh, well, maybe I'm just not expert, but I just think of a violin, so.
1: Exactly. (laughs) You'll you'll hear, you'll probably hear a violinist. Well, I mean, Itzhak Perlman, he plays a great Strad, that's, but, um, so, you, what you hear is maybe Heifetz or whoever your favorite player is in their sound and they play a Strad or Gennari, so that's their sound, but let's try and track it back a little bit. how much is the violinist and how much is the instrument? The question yeah. becomes, can the players tell the difference? And, and that was the kind of the radical thing with the blind listening test. So
0: tell me about those.
1: Well, um, I assumed that, like virtually everyone else, that there was an old sound and there's that, that came with age, and if it wasn't Best exemplified by any particular maker. There's still a general quality there, and God knows the time we put into looking at old wood samples and trying to find differences. But you know, researchers really couldn't find physical correlates with you hmm. know um, with these different instruments. And you look at response curves, you know, sound hmm. radiation or admittance, and right. you see very similar sort of things. All of them are different, new, old. All violins look different, but they have similar features and. Um, I say, well, we're not looking at the right thing or some different measurement, but the notion that, well, maybe there really isn't a difference. And what do we mean by is or isn't a difference? Um, We're talking about something that can only be heard if it's played by a player. So if a player can't hear the difference or can't tell the difference and listeners
0: can't, then you have to say they're objectively is no different, so that's testable. So, so I want to get to that in just a second. But mm-hmm. th- I mean, th- this this very much resonates, as it were, with, with 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 my confusion because when I when I would hear these things, uh, uh, the, the the stereotypical notion that there was this wonderful violin, the Stradivarius, and nobody mm-hmm. could duplicate it, and there were uh, types of violins, right? All, all of these Stradivarius A, B, mm-hmm. C, and D, and so forth. Um, and this was the apex. This was the ultimate. This this the standard story. This cliche, yes. as it was uh, you you were saying. And I'm thinking to myself. But they must be able to figure out what the parameters are, what's actually going on. We have all this technology, we have all this testing. They must be able to say, it was the type of wood, it was the type of resin, it was the type of this, it was yeah. the type of that. We should be able to identify if the sound quality can be parameterized in a clear way. We should be able to do that now. Well, so what was very mysterious to me that we, we somehow weren't able to replicate it, and, and what you're saying before I'm going to throw it back to you, it seems to me is that it's actually not that simple. It's a, you, we can't look at it that way in terms of uh, y- y- uh, you know, they're, they're, these, these particular qualities are uh, show up in this particular way and it's attributable to this, that, or mm-hmm. the other thing that can be duplicated. So anyway, it, it has to do with the person who's playing it, obviously, and, well, it, and it has to do with the conjunction of the two. Is that right? Or is I, that I remember right? once asking, proposing to Gabi, this is
1: Gabriel Weinreich. Um, um, who's a physicist. Yeah, a physicist and one of the few really top physicist who went into violin research and, and musical acoustics. And so I was trying to, had this theory of maybe why this or that happened. And, and I remember he said, you know, b- before you start making theories to explain a phenomenon, it's best to make sure the phenomenon actually exists. Yeah, And, and, you and that's, <laughs> you can look around forever for the secret of Stradivari, but unless you can define what you're looking for, um, you're not gonna find anything. Now, the, the, the way to gather, the way to get objective data from subjective judgments, I mean, you can say, well, violin sounds subjective, how can you possibly? Well, you get a bunch of them and you start to find statistical right. trends. And the obvious way is with double-blind tests The only way you can get rid of subjective biases, like if you know this is a Strad, then you're gonna hold it different, you're going right. to. Um, treat it differently, and, and listeners are going to be changed by that knowledge.
0: Um, so what happened? So tell me about the double-blind test. Tell me, tell me what the results were and how it was done and what the results
1: well, were. Well, you, you, um, this is where um, Claudia Fritz is, was a, is a, a French researcher. I'd met her at Cambridge. We have a group of violin researchers we meet there, and she was studying with Jim Woodhouse, a lead researcher, um, Cambridge professor, um, how, we, how how we... Perceive violin sound and how we judge it, and she got an interested in how people evaluate instruments. And she started doing some blind tests. And um, um, we invited her to the um, BSA Oberlin Acoustics Workshop, which is a week every summer in Oberlin that I co-direct with Fan who is also part of this. Um, and so we said, "Well, come on over and let's do a blind test there." And I, there is I know something like twelve violins on a table and. Um, various people there put on these goggles and darkened room you play and, you know, arrange them in order. And it's very interesting when suddenly a normal source of information is taken away. It's disorienting in a way. There's this curious mixture of, I don't know, uncertainty, but a kind of a freedom, you know, just, you know, the primacy right. of your perception, you know, right. really listen. Um, so it impressed me as that, yes, that was the way we should be doing this. That's how we can get at this difference between new and old, between old Italian and non old Italian. So, um, the, um, there's a big violin making competition, violin playing competition in, in Indianapolis and Glenn clock, Glenn Quack, the director is a very open-minded, interesting mm-hmm. man. And, um, that was an obvious place to do tests cause a lot of good violins there and it got a lot of good violins. So I started organizing that invited Claudia over and fan and we, you know, it became a project and we designed the experiment based on what we had learned at Oberlin and, and based on experiments um, Claudia had done in Montreal with people at McGill. Right. And um, so
0: how many people were, were involved?
1: It was 21 subjects. There was three new violins, two strads and a Guinary del Jesu, So it's a small one. It was in a hotel room and, um, Claudia was six months pregnant and, you know, it was just rounding up people after concerts. It was really just trying to pull something off. Right. But we did it well, I think. And it was so striking watching people. It, it's one thing reading about it. When you sit there and watch very good players pick up instruments, and um, which do you prefer? A, B, A, B, and, and seeing them starting to pick the new ones. They didn't know it and they couldn't possibly know it. Um, and I didn't even, you know, you don't even know it being there because you don't see either. And then you start looking at, oh, you know,
0: and how did, how did it work if I'm playing the violin? How do I, how, how, how is it? How is that knowledge screened for me, that it's, that it's not this particular instrument? They all just happen to look? I mean, can you violins, tell by, 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 by looking in some um, way that it by absolutely. You By looking, absolutely. You can, you can so that they're, they're playing it and they're not able to look at it? How does that work? Oh, they're wearing the goggles, right. You I'm get sorry.
1: welder's goggles, you put some tape on them, you turn the light down until it's just a silhouette. Right. Um, you really can't tell. We, we put a little bit of
0: some sort of essential oil to mask scents. Um, so they couldn't tell. So they, the, the expert violinist couldn't tell by playing them. Um, and, and what about when they were, listen- and they were also the ones listening to, to others? Right? No, that, in that or, case, or was it was it just you?
1: players, it was just player preference, okay. that one. Right. So it's players in a hotel room, um, not completely blindfolded because that disorients you more profoundly sure. Um, sure. and their groups had found that. So just these goggles, you know, which do you prefer, A, B, A, B, and then um, that was one part and then we got another part where they had 20 minutes to, you know, kind of choose their favorite and um, sort of rank them. And, um, and then talk about the different qualities of each one. And a number of things were very clear listening, both Fan and I, Fan is a amateur violinist and has a good ear. We, we were both struck by the biggest difference was the violinist. I mean, remember a Russian violinist with a great bow arm came they all sounded like late Guarneri Dilja. I mean, that's <laughs> kind of another one. They all sounded kind of bright and hyped up huh. and, and it was very impressive. There was so much the violinist and, the violinists had strong feelings about the difference between the violins. It wasn't as though these conditions took away the ability to discriminate. They huh. discriminated very thoroughly. But the results were very interesting. There is a clear favorite, it happened to be new. There's a clear least favorite, it happened to be a strad. Um, um, in the middle, you'll have one violin, this person loves it, this person hates it, most people hold it in qualified regard. You know, this one particular strad was considered both the easiest to play and the hardest to play by different by equal huh. number of people. Huh. So clearly there's this middle group. Um, if I wanted to measure those, and you know, what am I going to measure to find out what you need to do is take the ones at the extremes. Almost everyone likes this one, and almost no one likes this. Let's get 10 of each of those and start measuring. Then you'll
0: start to find some. Right. This gets back to the, the, uh, the comment that Gavi made about you have to know what it is that the yes. phenomenon actually is, what you're measuring, what you're looking Exactly. For. And a lot of people have measured violins.
1: And even derived quality parameters, you know, physical correlates with s- subjective judgments. But it was kind of assumed that violin quality is obvious. You just give it to a good player and ask him. Right. Or you listen, you know. And you see this written, you know, these were the ones of famous violinists or, or, or these were judged, um, you know, or a researcher will say any violinist can tell in 30 seconds whether violin is new or old. I mean, this is just sort of taken for granted. And yeah. I would have thought the same. It's not, it's not that they were far off and they were, you know, these were physicists more than. Yeah. Well, you know about those guys. Well, <laughs> well but there's, there's, I was joking.
0: That's
1: but the, the, there's an important point there. Um, physicists work in labs and you don't get strads just showing up in labs. So a lot of the work <laughs> is done with these really um, violin like objects. I mean, right. very poor, instruments. it doesn't matter if you're trying to work out the basic physics, right. if you're trying to talk about quality, then you've got to start involving good players and good instruments. Now, unfortunately, I think there's been a general anti-science feeling in the violin making world, in the, in the music world even. The idea, hmm. I can't tell you how often used to hear that there's a kind of a pride in the mystery of the violin, and that wouldn't it be a shame if? You, would, you don't want to go there. You don't want to unravel. It's like a magician yeah, yeah, yeah. when you learn the tricks. Of yeah, it You don't want to. Well, why would you want to lose the, the the that mystery? And hmm. Of course, that's not how it works. You know, hmm. the more you understand, usually the more interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank God. Or and, the, and the more sort of, you don't know, of course. Yeah, exactly. It never stops. Um, but there, there is a, there, there. I would say that violin makers weren't very interested in in science and. There's a I'm um, a wonderful researcher, Norman Pickering. Um, I remember him telling me once I was about to go on and give a talk, a, a acoustics lecture. And, and he said, you know, Joe, there's a special silence that comes at the end of an acoustics lecture for violin makers. <laughs> 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 it, 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 it's true. It, it just was out of the, um, out of the context really. Right. And, and, the, and one could, stay within this sort of region of working by intuition and everything because it was known, well known that science couldn't explain it. So, you know, that was just kind in those of- those days, yeah. Yeah, um, and how many times have you, do, do you read media headlines? Um, a favorite one of mine is um, sort of this golden voice of broadcasting comes in and says, for centuries scientists have struggled in vain to understand the secrets of Stradivari. <laughs> Really, in vain? (laughs) Do you have an idea how many interesting things have been learned? It's like scientists have struggled for centuries to figure out the mysteries of the human brain. Well, and they've made a lot of progress. Yes, and and it's still interesting and still a mystery. You know, that's just how the world is. the The notion that there is a simple secret that now, if you'd say scientists have struggled in vain to discover the cure for cancer, well, okay, then you you know what the the answer would be, you can cure it or you can't. But,
0: but even still. Even still that, even it's still, a lot still, more complicated. We've, and, and we've made a lot of progress. Yeah. And we've, there are a lot of cancers that can be treated, of course, in and, and more advanced ways. Absolutely, and, so and I know nothing about... but um, well, neither one of us that that do, so, so we should keep talking about but, that. Then.
1: But at least there's <laughs> a clearly defined goal, like right. people won't die of cancer. Or, right. Um, right. Whereas with the secret of Stradivari...
0: Well, um, what, it, what are we talking about here?
1: Yeah, so... Um, so much, I think, energy was... W- Wasted just in looking for the wrong things now um, well, okay, back to the um, the um, Indianapolis, Indianapolis experiment got a, a lot of attention and, and a lot of criticism, very little by scientists actually, because the reviewers got of the paper get most of the <laughs> you sort that out beforehand right. so um, but it was, well, what can you tell in a hotel room? I mean you can 't tell anything in a
0: hotel room. Right, so that's distorting. So that's the yeah, big distorting yeah. effect that they're they're isolating. So um,
1: may, maybe I mean, um, do soloists do violinists play in hotel rooms? Well, all probably, the time. yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> the better they are, the probably the more they do because they, they live in them. But th- the point is 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 a, a fair one. Um, projection, which is how well a violin can be heard at a distance, can't really be judged from under the ear. It can only be judged by a listener, and we didn't have listeners. But
0: then we weren't claiming to, right. So uh, this this speaks to to the the need for more tests.
1: Yes, exactly. And so it was a small test that gave, it it provided kind of a a counterexample to the, to the kind of general, what do you call it, the received wisdom on, on, and and then so the next one was a much bigger test, and we could learn from everything we'd learned in Indianapolis. um, And that was um, organized in Paris by by Claudia and she got a grant through her lab to do it and then. So when was that, when did that happen? That was in this past September, um, end of September. It was a week and we had, we thought we will just use soloists, we don't wanna be criticized for using, you know. so we had 10 soloists, we had um, six new violins and six old violins, five of them strads and those were chosen out of a pool about Ten or twelve significant old violins, right? Um, so we felt that okay, those three instruments didn't happen to do as well. Well, let's try with these six. You know, right. nothing's conclusive. But right. the trouble with violins of, of of this kind of quality, I mean, there's we you know you have a hundred million worth of instruments, and um, that's only a few. Yeah. Um, you can really only learn, I think, by doing a lot of small tests. We'll never be able to do like a drug test. Sure. Where you can get sure.
0: <laughs> 5700. Stradiv- <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Um I mean you I mean 600 strides in existence I suppose it's conceivable you could get them all together but it's logically
0: possible <laughs> but probably not much more than that. So what happened? So they so you did this test what were the what were the results?
1: Well, well pretty much the same. Um let me just we did it. um we gave them more time. We had the soloist in a rehearsal room. It was that our family used for rehearsing all the time. Okay.
0: So, so and the sound could project much more. You weren't. Well, in it the was more like
1: anymore. a normal room you'd practice in. It right. wasn't a hall. But they they evaluated them. They had an hour with these twelve instruments, and they right. asked them to eliminate the ones they didn't think were suitable, which they can do pretty quickly, and then focus on. And and so I think seven out of ten chose a new violin. Um,
0: seven, so we yeah. two, two questions I wanted to ask. Were any of these new violins yours, just out of curiosity? And either one of these, no tests? one will ever know who
1: made any of the new violins. Oh, it's double blind, right? It's double yeah, and it's also set up not to be a marketing sure. thing for any particular sure. new maker. Sure. And so we'll stay away from that. They were all professionally made. Okay. And there is six different makers. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, day one, um, I think seven out of ten chose new violins.
0: Seven out of 10.
1: Yes. Huh. Um, I think. I, I, um, but then the next day, we did it in a hall, a beautiful small hall, but excellent acoustics. And we had a piano, and we had a pianist. So they could, they're still blindfolded, but they could, um, they could play with the piano accompaniment, mm-hmm. so they could hear how it felt with the piano. And they could have a trusted listener out in the hall to give them feedback, or another soloist to play. So all the things a violinist would normally do, um, they did, except they didn't know what they were they were playing. And and again, the... Didn't change
0: a, anything? With, or what were the results there? Was with pretty much, the pretty much
1: the same, yes. Huh. Um, um, and then the next day, we h- had just a few violins playing excerpts of solo violin, like A, B, A, B. So you could listen to two violins. And the question you're interested in is projection. Which can you hear better? Which is clearest? And projection on their own and with an orchestra. We had a whole orchestra assembled and they'd do these, choose some excerpts where the climaxes to different concertos where the violinist tends to be almost drowned out by the orchestra. New violin, old, new, old, and then audience of about 50 experienced listeners, violin makers, players, acousticians, checking off. It went on for an hour, two hours. And um, there was no doubt about it. The new instruments projected better huh. and old instruments tend to sound rather soft into the ear, but there is this notion that they project despite that the grow the sound seems to grow the further you get from them and This is a commonly expressed thing mm. the mellow instrument that projects and that's that is a mystery mm. um, but again, does it exist um, they didn 't there was um, a particular Um, Strad that was very well liked. I mean it was chosen as favorite by um, I think it was the 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 third most preferred instrument Um, and but it didn't project very well. It it had a a lot of energy at the low frequency. To to project well it seems you need to make a lot of sound and have a fair amount of it at, at high frequencies. Your ear is most sensitive about 38 um, 100 hertz, 3.8 mm-hmm. kilohertz, two to four this is this kind of range where we where we pick up a lot of things. And if, if if there's not much energy there, in a hall, you're not going to you're not going to hear it very well. And that's right. that what seems to be the case um, here. Um, so under your ear, on the other hand, th- the mellow sound can often be very I mean, enchanting and lovely to play. Um, the the violin that did best there was uh, I'm surprised so many people liked it under the ear because it was quite loud
0: and almost to the point hmm. of irritating. Um, well, so that would go against this whole phenomenon, though, though wouldn't it go against the enchanting mellow sound? If it, I mean, presumably that's not even uh, uh, that phenomenon doesn't necessarily exist. Then I mean, at some, well, at some level, well, th- there's no doubt that there's loudness under the ear varies from instrument
1: to instrument, and hmm. I would think. A caricature of new violins would be bright and loud under the ear, kind of crass right. and a caricature of old ones would be this very mellow smooth there 's not a caricature it 's a right. portrait and um, but there 's actually some old instruments that are very bright and very loud under the ear, so um, i don 't think
0: sure because i 'm thinking if the signal was that distinct if, 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 if that uh, if that correlation was that mm-hmm. strong, then the people playing would be able to tell presumably right they 'd be able to do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, they, they, they should be able to tell this, said, oh, no, this is the mellow guy that's in, so I must be playing a well, areas or well, something like that. Well, this is what
1: surprised me, that at least for soloists, they they seem to go for big-sounding instruments. And I did acoustical measurements of all the instruments, or I was measuring the sound output all around the instruments. Um, we can talk about how um, yeah, uh, I, later I on, but it's the, it's the sound radiation per unit force at the bridge. Um, and there was a definite correlation the ones that the solos preferred put out more sound Hmm. right across the board Um, and you know if you take a graph of the two most preferred you know it's about 3db above the graph of the Hmm. two least preferred Um, and this really hadn't been Isolated before, and the reason not is because you didn't have that selection process. Because right. there's a lot of violins are just right in the middle, and they they blur it. Right. So, um, so this it, is going to be a big deal, presumably, I, when it comes out. I mean, this is I, going, I think going so. to make some waves. I, would I, think. I, I think so. Yes. Um, now, what's interesting? Okay, so we also had the players, unbeknownst to the audience, play an excerpt of a concerto on their own instruments. And half of them are new and half of them are old. Right. And then we asked the audience simply to listen to this 30 seconds of concerto mm-hmm. and guess, and guess is it new or old? Right. Um, people believed, the first two that were played, people had strongly believed one way or the other. In both cases, it was wrong. They thought, <laughs> you know, and then the rest was completely random.
0: <laughs> so, so here I am, a complete non expert and, and uh, it 's great when I see these kinds of empirical yeah. results because and
1: also in the, in day two, after the people the, the soloists have been playing in the hall, we, um, w- w- we presented each player with a, s- a series of instruments, um, like their most preferred their least preferred they didn 't know what, and just asked thirty seconds right. new world completely random <laughs> <laughs> completely random, and people would say things like you know this is uh, you know the uh, maybe nineteenth century. You know, it was this. They were hearing something. Um, okay, so let's say that our findings show it doesn't mean that there aren't any differences, but let's say our findings showed that neither the player nor the listener can sure. tell old from new, sure. which they seem to. Um, it, it doesn't mean there isn't a difference, and there clearly is a difference because if they simply had said. Um, Old for all the violins, they couldn't hear as well. They would have got it. <laughs> 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 Almost right. You know, it, 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 that's the crazy thing. There are differences, but that's not what people were listening for. Uh-huh. The thought was, old instruments project better. Um, you know, uh, or old instruments do this. Old instruments do yeah. that. So um, the, sub-
0: the subjective nature though, that we impose these, these these ideas that are actually quite distinct from what the reality is. As you said, if they had just looked at the projection. Then, then they would have been able to, to, to distinguish between the two of them. But they're, thinking, they're bringing a, a different perspective when they, yes. when they play or when they listen. Yeah,
1: you know, we, we, when we hear something, we, when I play a violin now, even knowing everything I, I know, it's really hard to subtract um, the impressions. If I pick up an old violin, I mean, they're beautiful. I love them. Um, and I put on a mirror, I, I have to remind myself, what I'm hearing is what hits my eardrum, and it's also everything I know and love about old instruments. When I play my own instrument, it's what hits my ear drum and my own self-doubts and worries, you know, it, and all these color one sound, and all of which makes it important to start measuring, to start measuring sound. Um, the, the, you know, the kind of image I use now is that, you know, pilots, you know, when they're flying, if the weather gets bad, don't trust your instincts, <laughs> right? <laughs> trust the, the measurements. measurements. Right. Yeah, because I mean, the two, in ideal world, they work together and. Um, Right now, um, violin makers are used to measuring things, but not sound. I mean, the equipment hasn't been available, and it's
0: so that's um, a great segue to get get yeah. to get to that. But right before we do, if I may, yeah, uh, we haven't talked about the bow. Yeah. At all. Before we get to there, let me just talk about the finish of the experiment.
1: Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, Go ahead. The the measurements, I there was a general difference between the old ones and the new ones, not just in the amount of power, but it but those differences, I think. Are characteristic of slightly thinner instruments, which is exactly what's true with old ones. They've got thinned out a bit in general. I think you can say, and most new makers wouldn't go quite as thin as that. So, so what are we talking? About? We're just talking about the thickness of the material, the, yeah, thickness, the thickness of the, of the, the wood, the top and back, the t- especially okay. the, the setup. As okay. you thin things out, the frequency of the resonance go down. You get a slightly darker sound. Okay. this is a, a you know a, a generalization, but th- there's a trend there, and. This is something that will take a lot more study, but looking at the the characteristic curves of the old and the new, in those 12 instruments there there was a a general difference. I think it could be explained by a difference in average thickness. You don't have to go to properties of old wood or anything elaborate like that. Right. so that, that's what we know so far, or have found so far. So it was done again in, in, in New York with um, a, a smaller blind test, again doing projection, and again pretty much the same, the same thing. The same the, results. The audience couldn't tell, and the old um, didn't project as well.
0: So to sum up, if I, if, if I may, I've got to try, so mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. To sum up, a um, couple of interesting results come out of this. One is neither the players nor the listeners uh, can actually distinguish between... Um, or, or show any marked preference for old instruments uh, and and new instruments. Oh, In no, fact, I they do show a marked preference for the new instruments. Sorry, yes. they, they prefer the new instruments, and they can't tell whether an instrument is necessarily old or new when they're when they're doing Absolutely. this. Absolutely. But there are uh, there is empirical d- there are empirical data. My subject for agreement. Anyway, there there <laughs> we we know that there are differences, measurable differences between old instruments and new dif- uh, new instruments in terms of the quality of the sound. There is a way of actually measuring some of this, um, but we're not sure exactly... Uh, uh, let me back up. But uh, we're not sure exactly what produces that, although you have your suspicions, but also the people who are... Uh, even though there are, there are these differences that are uh, objective that are out there, the, the people who are listening or the people who are playing aren't necessarily making that correlation with those differences. They have a whole different mental... Uh, toolkit when they come down to play in yes. terms of what they desire and what they don't which depends on all sorts of other factors
1: and this comes to actually something that i'm greatly interested in now which is learning to hear the violin learning to describe what we're hearing in objective terms rather than subjective ones w- one of the difficulties with working with players violin makers working with players is They'll come and say, I'd like it a little darker, a little brighter, a little warmer, a little woofier, a little goosier, who knows, you know. Um, and you've got to figure out, some of them are clearer enough, others not. A right. little brighter, a little darker is pretty clear. Um, what would happen if we just described the objective characteristics of sound? Um, well, you can't do that unless you are you can hear it clearly. Um, musicians are, and a lot of them have incredible ears, and you can play a bunch of chords that they can tell you what notes are playing. I mean, um, they're used to hearing analytically, but more in musical terms. In other words, the notes that make up a chord or the right. st- musical structures. There's no reason we can't learn to hear timbre in those same terms. Recording engineers do it all the time. right? Um, and they train by, you know, having equalizers that, you know, there's software for, for training where you know, this it's down 3 dB at, you know, two kilohertz, that third octave band. Can you hear the difference? I mean, the, the random changes you've got to identify. You can gradually train your ear to hear differences and explain those differences while there's a bit of a boost at three kilohertz.
0: Is there a danger, you think, uh, or, or do people feel that there might be a danger that if they train or retrain their ears to hear in this particular way, that will somehow interfere with their musicality, that will somehow be too clinical, too scientific, too detached. They'll start thinking in a way which doesn't make them uh, susceptible to be able to play music at the highest possible levels. Is that, does it, 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 have you heard those sorts of arguments or do you, are you, are you cognizant um, of those sorts I have of fears? <coughs> well,
1: right now, ear training for violin sound doesn't exist, so it hasn't come up there except I've been thinking about it and right. giving the occasional talk about it. I, I can't imagine why anyone would feel that way. Musicians are incredibly pragmatic pragmatic people, if anyone who spends hours playing scales, does that enhance your musicality? No.
0: Sure. No, I guess <laughs> decision just, and all the rest I'm of it. I'm trying to imagine that the people, we talked a little bit earlier about this sense of, well, you don't want to be too technical or too scientific because that will somehow uh, give away the mystery and we should keep the mystery. Mm-hmm. So so I'm trying to project something, an argument, which make. Maybe completely inexistent, but I'm trying to project an argument that people might actually use. That oh oh yes, well this is all very clinical and scientific, but but somehow that would interfere with you know, that would give away the mystery or something. But you, anyway, you haven't heard any any any
1: um, not yet. I'm sure this. it'll I'm sure it'll it'll come <laughs> up. There's always
0: a reason not to, <laughs> to
1: so, do so something. I think it'll simply clarify things. I mean, it sure. mean we can have a. But the thing is, it's their recording engineers are doing it all the time. Right. I mean, they just don't even talk about. They just. Right. Do the adjustments it's, it's just right. it's just you know usually becoming better acquainted with reality and <laughs> identifying it more clearly is is, is invigorating I think <laughs> yes it, it's not um,
0: okay, so let, let's get to some of your uh, your techniques to be able to to analyze and hear the sound a little mm-hmm. bit better, and you've developed some of them uh, yourself, and presumably there are other people who've
1: yes I, I've, I've well. sort of had a, a ongoing project ways of measuring violin sound in a workshop setting um, rather than in a laboratory. Um, so I've taken t- techniques developed by others and, and adapted them and refined them for, for violins, um, for violin making use. A couple of things I find as a working maker, if you can't measure something in 10, 15 minutes, you're not gonna do it. Right. In a lab, you know, my, my, my definition of boredom is watching a physics experiment in progress. I mean, <laughs> setting up all day and right. fixing software and getting connections and then boom, and it's over. That's not going to work for violin makers. Right. So let's take what they're doing in a, in a lab. Well in a lab, I mean, there's a saying, I think that equipment's over-designed if you can use it more than once, you just want to design something for that experiment and mm. then, you know, move on. Okay. I wanted something that, would evolve into a tool which you could use again and again to measure violins in a standardized way. Sure. So it would be a workshop tool, a measurement tool, rather than a physics tool, although hopefully it could be used for both. Um, a German violin maker researcher called Martin Schlesky um, started using what's called an impulse hammer, an impact hammer. It's a, it's a tiny little hammer with a force sensor in its head and it's a widely used engineering tool. You can whack a bridge with one of those and it'll measure the force and you put accelerometers over the bridge you can see what the motion is like and you can mm-hmm. study the um, normal modes of a, a bridge. Now I think in the 70s some very small ones started coming out which were feasible for tapping violins or tapping violin bridges and, and Martin Schlesky, um who, who I got to know quite well and admired very much, um, had it set up where the violin was held upright. You'd tap the bridge and you'd rotate the violin it, with respect to a microphone so you could measure the sound all around it. Now, the thing about violin compared with, um, let's say, a loudspeaker is that um, it, it's very directional. With with frequency at above about eight hundred hertz, it starts getting more and more directional out the front of the instrument. And um, you, at higher frequency, you get these kind of quills of sound in different directions, and they move. You know, with each semitone. And Gabriel Weindreich was one of the oh, okay. people who formulated the, um that is directional tone color. That, that's part of what we hear as violin sound, how it fills space. It's a very particular quality. Huh. And he invented a speaker that would reproduce that effect. And it's exactly the effect that's lost by, certainly by a single loudspeaker because they all combine it
0: together. They don't the, the art of
1: loudspeaker making is to make something that's as omnidirectional as possible right. and as flat as possible at least in the directions that can't be omnidirectional. Um, so it's not a natural thing to get um, through a speaker. And most people have only heard violins through speakers. I mean, n- n- sure. not much These of the world days. has really yeah. been sure. to a, a concert.
0: Um, huh. I had, no, I had no, no understanding of that at all. I mean, that, that alone, just to, just to interject for is, is shocking to me, the idea that you're, the sound fills space in a very different way when you're in a live concert. Of course, it makes yeah. sense now, now that I hear you, but uh, that's...
1: And with, there's been a tremendous amount of research into that lately. Um, How to, how to recreate, you know, the musical impressions we have in a concert hall or recreate ones that are satisfying Um, what, what we love, what we don't love. Um, Surround sound. I mean, there's Mm. um, fill in some spatial information that's lost in, in stereo and that the ear seems to love. at any rate, for me, it was really a standardized way of measuring you know, the radiated sound of an instrument so that I could put in an instrument, put in another one and be measuring the same thing, fold that up, take it somewhere else, and again measure the same thing. One of the problems, of course, is, is the room. You get right. room reflections. Right. But I do it with the microphone quite close up, and it ignores a, a lot of what's going on in the room. I use a directional microphone. All these things are compromises. I mean, you lose some view of the instrument, no matter what choice you make. But but it does make it uh, transposable. You can take yes. it here and there. Yes, and, and so uh, the last th- time in New York, by chance, had a ch- we could do the measurements in an anechoic chamber, cool. which is just great. Yeah. Um, but I came back and measured one violin in the anechoic chamber and, and then right over there, and they're very close. I mean, there's some differences,
0: but kind of the extent... So you don't have to be in an anechoic chamber, which is useful. Right. <laughs> that was very helpful <laughs> to know. Right. Um, so... You were going to ask about the bow, I think. Oh, I did. But uh, l- let's get to that at the, because at the I wanted to actually, well, I don't know if we can move over because we're in the middle of this this, this shoot here. But if you can, uh, maybe, we, well, how, how are we going to do this? Can we? Uh, do you want to come back to here? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe. Can we um, finish here and then? Yeah, maybe we can do that. Maybe we can finish sure. and then, and then and then go over. Because I, d- I do actually want to take a look at this thing and, and, and have you describe it. Uh, in terms of how it works and the hammer and so sure. forth, when we're actually looking at it, sure. I think that would that would be useful since we are we mm-hmm. do have this video product, we might as well have pictures of what's actually Absolutely. going on. Absolutely, um, but so so you're, what I'm getting from you is uh, is an interesting what I would call progressive, not to be overly sycophantic, but progressive marriage of aesthetics, which I know you believe in very very strongly and you and you care about uh, deeply. Um, the love of the musical experience, but also the full embracement of science to be able to not only determine objectively what the issue is and what mm-hmm. we're talking about, but also how we can innovate and how we can uh, improve upon the quality uh, and experience of, of the products that we have. So one is just simply detection, right? Finding out exactly what the sound is and and, yes. and get a, get a yes. sense of that. Because again, uh, as you were saying, unless we have a clear understanding of what's going on, we, we can't hope to do anything more progressive. But you've also experimented with uh, the very light violins, mm-hmm. you've experimented with digital violins and so forth. So what was your motivation in doing doing these things? What and, and what have you done? Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, like all violin makers, I started out essentially copying, whether I of it that way or not but then explicitly copying old violins trying to look ever more closely at what what's going on um, after a while I, I, in the mid 90s i think uh, you know after maybe working for 15 years you start to feel the the image i use is a, is a civil war reenactor doing <laughs> 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 battles that were lost or won a long time ago <laughs> why keep refighting them well why do I try and make something that looks old that looks like it made two centuries ago right. um, when everyone else in the universe is
0: <laughs> <laughs> moving on?
1: Yes. And well, there's this, Oh, but you know, the, the, there's this special something that you haven't recaptured yet. Right. But then again, there's a special something about Michelangelo that people haven't captured again, but yeah. no, they're not t- even trying. Yeah. At and like for <laughs> good reason. <laughs> um, so there's just kind of a restlessness. I, 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 I get bored quickly, I guess. And, but also I'm, I don't live in the aesthetic world of the you 1700s, know, 1800s. I, I, right. When I go to art galleries, I love contemporary art, I love modern art. Um, um, so there's a real dissonance there. Um, so I started asking myself questions. Well, you know, could I make something beautiful that doesn't look just like a stride or a guanary, and, right. and then how, and how much of that can overlay with um, what musicians would, um, um, agree to play on. I mean, um, this is a fairly conservative world. I mean, you you, know, you wear black and white and you right. go in there with your brown or orange violin and you know, you kind of fit into an orchestra, you know, you, um, if you want to make a living, you, you've got to pretty much conform to, um,
0: to that sort of thing. At least until you get to be at such an incredibly high level that presumably you can do whatever you want, but, uh, but that probably takes a long time to... Yeah, yeah maybe. I, I haven't reached that. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, the vi- the vi- the, I'm not talking about the violin maker so yeah. much, but I mean, presumably, if, if you are Itzhak like Perlman or something like that, then you could show up with a bright pink violin if you felt like doing so without threatening yes. your career, I would guess. Well, I
1: tend to think now that um, There are opportunities for players to differentiate themselves by doing something new. So much of um, so much of classical music is 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 fundamentally it's kind of a museum curating. I mean, you know, the Beethoven concerto, the Mozart, you know, which are absolutely life-changingly beautiful works. But after you've had generations of violinists doing them, you start to wonder, well. for a soloist, I think, well, how can I differentiate myself? And um, and with the incredible high levels of violin playing now, um, um, sooner or later, I would think players might find an advantage in having that something distinctly different, especially if you were a quartet, where you're a kind of a complete aesthetic unit. You don't mm-hmm. have to fit with an orchestra. You don't have to, um, but th- th- that's neither here nor there. I've come to think of the best um, direction for innovation is actually to solve problems rather than express aesthetic feelings, but just try and solve problems with the traditional design.
0: So what kind of problems are you trying to solve? What are you? you Well,
1: (laughs) the the violin is is
0: so often thought of as a perfect design,
1: but really if you look closely it's riddled with unresolved design issues and um, um, if I if I grab a violin the prop we finally yeah. move into the okay, prop so mode. so here's a violin looks just like an old one, but it's not <laughs> um, the, the corners I mean we, we makers spend hours getting the corners There's whole lectures about how that point is drawn in Strad and Guarneri violins. Yeah, so why um, are they there? Anyway, well they're, they're for aesthetic disturbing. reasons, right. yeah. Um, but you know, you give it to the player; they knock it off. You stick it on; <laughs> they knock it off. You stick it on. Uh, you know, at what point is it like a five mile per hour, <laughs> five mile per hour bumper? You don't want you know a fin sticking out in a vulnerable place. Right. Maybe they they, they shouldn't be there. With this, this is a digital violin, but it came from a um, simplified design. science doing. You know, it, it's less obtrusive. It still looks kind of like a violin. Do you like it? Yes, no, whatever. But it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a proposed solution to what I think of as a design problem. Right. But, um, you know, that's the least of it. Um, violins get damaged and they get damaged in particular ways. Um, and there's no reason we can't design them to resist that
0: damage. So tell me a little bit about that. Tell me the ways in which they get damaged and the ways that they might be, you might design them to resist. Um, well, there's a post in there called the Sound Post. Mm-hmm. And it's
1: press between the two of them and it tends to dig a hole in the top and there tends to be cracks that happen there. Mm. So years ago I started putting a little veneer of hardwood in there and that completely stops it happening. Doesn't affect the sound. It doesn't affect it at all. eh? Yeah. And then I started doing the same thing on the other side. The bridge um, um, is pressing down with about 20 pounds of force from the strings on this fragile wood. and it gradually works a hole in there. And by old violence, a big dents there and usually cracks around there. I've started putting these little um, veneers underneath the bridge glued to the instrument that stop that happening. Now this is very mild innovation and they raise some eyebrows. People say, what's that there? And well, how does it affect the sound? Well, really it doesn't affect the sound? Um, you know, right. um, and so simple things like that I think are relatively easy to to do, although it takes Took me a lot of time to feel comfortable doing it because you know we're not because of the conservatism in the yeah the it's an ingrained film. conservative. I think it's really the violin makers who are conservative and the musicians pick it up from us. Um, hmm. um is this sort of this loop between well, violin makers we worship the old ones and they you know it's right and the, um, the pegs are another. I mean these are just friction fitted wooden pegs and they work pretty well if they're adjusted well, but you know, the weather changes and right. there's no reason we shouldn't have yeah, I've of mechanical better. pegs. And there's some quite good ones coming up out now, I mean, where you, you know, planetary gears inside, so they um, give you a better ratio. Um, to my mind, it hasn't, no one's got it right yet. They're either too heavy or you have to glue them in, you know, there's... Um, why do we have a, s- a scroll here? Um, it looks nice, yeah, but we could why have, do you? Why, <laughs> why do you have... a scroll? <laughs> it's just traditional. There's has no acoustical effect. You could have an angel's head, a devil's head, <laughs> Obama's head, what it, what, whatever you like. Um, but then it gets... Um, that's just an aesthetic thing. And um, um, this, this one has a single turn yeah, it was, the, was design of mine. It it's, it's a little different. I mean, it's not radical, and it, it works on its own terms, I think. Um, but um, w- um, but the more profound uh, innovations, or what I think of as, are the ones that you're trying to do something specific with the sound, and then you have to say, why would you want to do that? Do players like it? So what now, kind? What kind? With those? The, well, the first time I had the the top off a Stradivari, Greg Alf and I was when we had to copy, and we had to put a new bass bar. And the client the client wanted one, took the top off, and I weighed it, and it was. People weren't used to weighing violin tops. They measure everything else about violins, but not, not the weight top. of the tops and backs for some reason. Hmm. And you find books on how the purflings are inlaid and what materials. But you, back in 1985, 86, you, you really didn't know what the weight of a top back should be or why you should measure it. Or Carleen Hutchins, a researcher, said I should get a scale. And I did start measuring. So I, I weighed the strat, and it was like, 54 grams, and, hmm, boy, I weighed mine, it was, it was 80 grams. This isn't a, <laughs> a subtle difference. Yeah. Um, and that got me thinking, well, wh- what is the effect of the mass? And, of course, if you step back a minute, why on earth wouldn't you measure something crucial like that? Why sure. worry about subtleties of varnish resins when, you could, when you're talking about 30 or 40% differences in mass? Um, so that really preoccupied me for, for many years, what kind of woods... What kind of wood properties would you need to make a lighter weight top? What would the acoustical effects be? The general feedback from engineers and physicists I talked to, well, if everything else is the same and it's half the weight, you're going to get twice as much motion for a given force Mm -hmm. and put out, what, 3db more sound or 6db, depending how you. um, So I started making lighter violins and musicians seem to
0: prefer them um, and it's probably easier for them they're looking to get all these injuries and so forth I would imagine that a lighter violin would it
1: wasn't it was partly that but it was just the
0: sound yeah it, sure it, of it's course. It, it,
1: it they sounded better um, but I um, I went for, you know then you say well what if you want to be lighter than that particular Strad I mean how light can you get then I started Using investigating balsa, com, um, balsa graphite composites, graphite foam composites. Huh. We had a fellow called Doug Martin who came to Oberlin who makes violins out of balsa, and they were um, very, very interesting. Um, but the general sense was you could get more sound and a faster response. That was my general impression. But you got to the point where it's, it's too loud. The, the players don't good. much like it. So it's it. too yeah. bright, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I um, started pulling back from that and saying, okay, I'm going to you know, really concentrate on the old sound, trying to get something mellower, and, and then imagine my surprise.
0: <laughs> 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 Actually,
1: <laughs> what people seem, at least what soloists seem to want is wow, a great right. deal of, of, <laughs> of power. So um, um, I think the intelligent use of design and materials is to, you know, to, make the kind of sound for the particular player you're working for. And um, I think I know how to make a mellow violin. I think I know how to make a very powerful one. Um, I don't think you need um, alternative materials, but there's no reason why one shouldn't take the design process further. For example, um, you hit here. When you're you're trying to play in upper registers, this gets in the way. Why not get rid of that? And I made a violin, and it sounded just like a violin, and did get rid of that. It, it's been done in viola. My teacher, my first instrument was a cutaway viola, which had sort of a lady shoulder there. Hmm. Um, and that helped. But there's a sense, if you, if you, if you modify anything, you're, you're in, in deep water.
0: But I, I want to get, so I want to explore this a little bit, the, the, the conservatism, because mm-hmm. there's the, the other violin makers, as you say, there's mm-hmm. this community of violin makers that, that, that feels that they're, they're, uh, they're the, you're carrying on the torch of Stradivari and so yeah. forth, and, and and this gets passed on to the uh, the players and, and the, the sense of, of community. But there also, I would think, would be some element of counterculture that it would exist, maybe not so much in the violin making world, but certainly among the, with the players, you have a lot of young people coming up. I guess they're worried about tradition and making their career, but I would imagine there's a certain percentage of people who would be really interested in pushing the boundaries of innovation being more technically oriented. I mean, we are living in the age of, you know, you would think high technology so. and so forth. And uh, these are young people who are coming up.
1: I, I hope they, they start to show up. Um, I, there hasn't been a call for innovation from players. Hmm. Um, I mean, there's innovation in string making, which has been very important. Um, in fact, one of the biggest um, developments in, in, in violin history has been the development of strings um, that, that work so much better than the old strings did.
0: So what's, what's, what's that all? I, I don't know anything about that. So wh- when, when did this tell me about this? The well most string strings making?
1: that people play now are, are, are nylon with metal wound on it and, but done in very sophisticated ways. Perlon they call it. Um, strings used to be have gut cores or, or solid guts and right. they were just very hard to play. In. Until
0: when? So when did the innovas- when did the string innovation happen? The 20th century, in the last half of the 20th century especially, nylon.
1: When I started violin making in the late um, 70s, they were just starting to the first popular synthetic bass string. The dominant string was um,
0: taking over. I mean, it really became popular. They're much more stable, easier to play. And 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 when that happened, was there pushback from the the community? Or maybe you're not aware of
1: it? Oh, you'll always get people saying, well, I prefer the quality of the old ones. And then there's this whole counter movement of, of period instruments, right, 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 of and course. so, you know, you get people trying to do the exact gut winding that they did at a certain, right. you know, when origin. Playing and all that. Yeah, time. which is interesting. Um, it, it, and it, But there's still this sense of kind of this backward scramble towards the old guys, towards the old Italians, you know, to play that way as though something's been lost. And, and really it's, rather than enjoying all the things that have been gained and then, um, um, but no, there hasn't been pressure for innovation from players, I don't know, there's individual players who are very open-minded, but. Sure,
0: um, but, but in general, you, you haven't. Yeah. I, w- I wonder if this has anything to do with some of the problems, problems maybe too strong a word, but certainly the, the general reputation that classical music has. So high bound as conservative, as mm-hmm. older people's music, it's not very progressive when you think of something. Hip and dynamic and, and, and forward thinking and innovative innovation friendly and, mm-hmm. and, and you don 't as a general rule tend to think of of classical music it has this it, it has i mean the very very expression classical music right, mm-hmm. <laughs> right there see it 's not music it 's classical oh it 's a certain type of, of, of music um, and I think there are, there are some uh, reasonable fears that it, unless there 's some um, unless there's some concerted way of trying to, to push the boundaries of that and, and, and yes. make it more accessible to people, then then the entire art form may in fact be imperiled. Is, is well, that some, except I mean, that how, how do you feel about all all of that, or, or is that just a mis? I, I don't think the art form compared? is imperiled. I mean, look at
1: what's happening in China, where you have um, or Korea with this. Huge populations who just love classical music. I don't
0: know anything about this. So tell me about it because I, I mean I I don't know what the, the the receptivity of classical music is in China and Korea and other places en mass there. I mean, oh, it's is that is huge. It's it the, okay. the education is great. Where here we're cutting money from, <laughs> you
1: know, public school strings and public school orchestras. Hmm. In in Korea, um, Japan. I mean, since World War II. I mean, they've all become major major players. In fact. Um, what what was the um the paradigm um, for violin prodigy was a Jewish boy you know right and now it's an Asian girl
0: right so I've, I've seen that uh-huh. but I, I mean i, I and, and and i'm not uh, not arguing, I just simply am completely ignorant so that part I see but what right. i what I don't see is the people who are there i mean many of the the Asian girl paradigms are people who have moved to the United States as a young Mm person, we're we're involved. So I'm just wondering on the ground in Korea, in China, in Japan, is there a sense in terms of the education system? Oh, their music is huge, absolutely huge. And and so why is that you think? What's what's driving that? What's motivating that? And why is it so different than it it is here?
1: Um, Well, you get a population that hasn't heard this body of music and they hear it and it's very appealing. just like if we had never heard the Beatles here before, and suddenly it, it came. It, it these right. things take over. I, mean, I think there's this great music that's just appealing.
0: That's the the Beethoven invasion.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. I'm not the person to ask about this. I not at all, all but this I, is from I, my workshop point of
0: view. Sure. But
1: but the larger uh, the issue I am aware of is is the, the Chinese are. Taking up violin, making making very very inexpensive instruments that have completely changed the world market, um, and made a lot of you know makers wonder can you know can one survive making you know a living by making instruments? And, right. Um, that's a, that's a different question. Sure. But the innovation one is interesting. I think that um, there is a lot of innovation in in classical music. I mean, there's I mean, there's been, as far as I can tell, a boon in um, a boom in. Composition, contemporary composers, classical or art composers, writing music people love to listen to, rather than perhaps strictly serial music or atonal music. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have this phenomenon too, I, I gather, of, of um, important players playing a variety of styles. You know, world music. Um, Yo Yo Ma is right. a paradigm for that. Sure. Um, so th- the very innovative programming. And you get more use of electric violins, I think, which is another way of tapping into other, other sounds. I got interested um, well, through projects I was working on with Gabi. Um, we, I built a crude electric violin for an experiment we we're doing. And um, then Gabi was interested in how could you make an electric violin sound like a real one um, using real-time electronics. And we started on that project. Um, um, but. The electronics weren't really up to it back then. Hmm. Um, then I was in Cambridge at one of our meetings and Jim Woodhouse and company had, were using this new real-time um, bit of electronics that would do convolution very quickly. And they were using it for, you'd get what's called the impulse response of a violin, which is kind of an acoustical fingerprint. And hmm. um, you could run an electric violin through it and it would sound like that acoustical violin. And, um, so Gabi and I picked that up and, and um, it, it worked out in principle that we could do it. We made some convincing samples. We had a very good violinist came in and played a few phrases from concerto on this electric violin and then we ran it through the filters and kind of started laughing at I couldn't tell it wasn't a good violinist playing a regular violin. Huh. At which point we more or less moved on to something else, because that's what you do as a researcher. Well, so It wasn't clear what you could do with that after. I mean, yeah. it's interesting. But, but, then, but then it showed up in some online interview, I think, and a, a young designer from the University of Michigan, a graduate, Alex Sobolev, said, well, I'm interested in building electric instruments. And so he came over, and we started working together on a lot of things. Um, and He brought in a friend of his, John Bell, who's just graduated from Michigan, University of Michigan, and a sound engineer and electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to have a startup company that would make these, what we call digital violins, and John designed the electronics, I mean, from the ground upwards, and Alex and I worked on the design. Alex is an industrial designer, and, um, and he, we put together this prototype, and it's almost market ready. Um, and the idea with this is, it's an electric violin that's lightweight, um, it doesn't feel like a lot of electric violins, which come from the kind of electric guitar world where you have this heavy right. thing. And
0: right, um, So how does w- it compare in terms of mass to, the, to a normal violin? Um,
1: it? It's a little bit heavier now. It will eventually be the, this, the same. Okay. Um, it also looks more or less like a violin. In an electric violin, you get all kinds of aesthetic statements. Uh, we wanted something, at least for a start, that... From the, from the audience point of view, would read as a violin rather than as a stick or as a right. you know a Stratocaster or or, or, or some other right. icon. Um, so the idea was with this: with this is that a, a normally trained violinist can pick it up, put it on their chin, and it'll feel just like a regular violin to play. Except the sound will come out of some specially designed speakers, and you will be able to um, program in the sound of a particular instrument, whether it's a Strata or area or a new instrument, you'll be able to change during a concert from from one to the other.
0: Huh. And these speakers will be able to reproduce the sound in the way that we were describing earlier. Were that
1: describing That's it? our our end goal. The the first is just to have a stereo output that people can plug into a you know the sound system. But yes, we want to make speakers custom made f- for this. And um, I think to my ear, going to a lot of. Um, Concerts that use electronic music is it's all the instruments are kind of coming out of the sound system Um, I I like the idea of having Not trying to get louder but having electronically Involved instruments such as this but each of them has their own speaker and you know, so So you have a sense of yeah Or um, so you want to be able to localize the sound coming from the individual instruments, but have that optimized by whatever, whatever that means. Right. Um, so we're very interested in having um, an instrument and a speaker and electronics and the three working together in, in very flexible and very um, sophisticated ways and in ways that reflect what the ear wants to hear and what the violinist wants to, to feel. And at a certain point, I think one could make an interface for designing violin sound in an easy way. I mean, resonances here, shifting mm. those around, and then mm. put that out there, let violinists make their sound. I mean, it would be interesting mm. to hear what we end up. If you could, if you had knobs on a violin where you could change the sound, where would, would everyone end up putting them on the same settings, or would you get this variety? You know, would you have different settings for different pieces? You can't do it with a, a regular that's violin, right. but with something like this, you can really learn about right. what, what it is people want. Interesting. What players want, that's the, <laughs> that's the big question.
0: So tell me two two more two more questions, mm-hmm. if I may. So tell me, uh, let's get back to this question of the bow. Yes. And 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 how much impact uh, a, a bow has as a, as another variable in this mm-hmm. whole this whole sense of equation of producing sound and so forth. A surprisingly big
1: impact, um, and it's not known why. Hmm. I mean, um, bow research was really non-existent. Um, or I shouldn't say non-existent, there was some good research done, but very little. Recently it's picked up a little, um, and there's um, some very good people involved. Um, how the the bow talks to the violin, how it can affect the radiated sound, it, it, it's we don't really know that yet. Um. And
0: there are fancy bow makers, right? I oh mean, oh yes, bow. very high, high level so, of and bow so making. What, what makes a good bow maker as opposed to a bad bow? I don't even i don't even have a language in which to talk about these things right? i I'm, I don't know much about bows I, I, I 've never really learned. Um, mm-hmm.
1: I know that bows picking up a good one is just easier to play i mean it, and there's a lot that a bow has to do that's very dynamic, bouncing you know right. you know good players are moving incredibly quickly from <laughs> right. one end to the other, you know if it starts wobbling at a certain point. you know there's all these little right. things to do with playability, but there's also something. Different bows match different instruments better. Yeah, well, that's, um, that's kind
0: of what I was thinking about. Um, I mean, because when, when I'm talking about, when, when you're talking about the double blind experiments and, mm-hmm. and if we can extrapolate that going past the whole Stradivaria, non Stradivaria, yeah. all that kind of stuff, and we're just saying, well, which instrument do you prefer? Then presumably there's another variable involved, which is which yes. bow fits best with which instrument? Well, we'll un- um, almost certainly get onto bows and double blinds.
1: Uh, tort is the Strativaria bow maker. is like he made the best bows ever.
0: Uh, really, when, when, did, when did he live? Good
1: question. Early eighteen hundred. Well, whatever. Um, okay. That, I just wanted to say um, But he 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 <laughs> kind of invented the modern bowers and credit credited to a lot of the.
0: And that's still considered the the apex of of, of, of bows. As well, well, yes.
1: It's been developed. I mean, and there's people who prefer different kinds of <laughs> bows later. But he's considered the great. I mean, he's the one that's most expensive. But the pacats, You know, there, there's um, all, there's a whole hierarchy of bows. Um, now blindfold people and give them different bows, can they tell an old bow from a new one? I mean, it's French bows, are, Italian violins, French bows are that kind. have that kind of... Um, Cachet, I guess. Exactly. And um, can people tell a French bow from a German bow or from a graphite bow? I, after the surprises of the violin tests, I, I, I don't think people can tell as much as they...
0: Think they
1: can. Think they can, although what they can tell will continue to be true is what ones work better for them. Right. And that's really the more interesting question Right. Um, so that's a whole area I've been kind of almost nervous about getting to know anything about Bose because it's, it's utterly Marks. fascinating
0: you're not <laughs> going to finish anything anymore <laughs> right, right. I, I don't need another <laughs> thing to flit around with okay so let me t- w- w- a couple other questions if I may mm-hmm. now that I have you here so have you ever been tempted to make other instruments other than violins? Have you? Violas I've made. Before. You have made violas. Oh, yes. And have you ever thought, you know, okay, it's time for a double bass. I want something really big now in my workshop.
1: Cello, I've made one. But you have? I used to call it my first and last. Okay. <laughs> why, 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 why is that? Well, I don't play cello, so I don't have a gut feeling about how it should okay. sound. And I feel like adjusting it with by listening to it is kind of like by remote control. It, it just... But I, but I hope to get back to it. I have some very good wood, and I have some people who are interested. So I'll maybe have a cello year where I really study <laughs> okay. up on it, and maybe take some lessons, and just to get the f- the feel for it. But you know, a self-respecting violin maker should really make some cellos, and as well. I oh, Is so really that's part of the violin maker's handbook somehow. Well, I mean, Guarneri, who's arguably the most influential maker now, I'm not Stradivari. People copy Guinari's. That's right. what players want. Um, he didn't make violas that we know of. There's one cello which has been attributed to him, but um, Stradivari made made cellos. Right.
0: You, you, but you, how many violas did you make? You made just one, or did you make? More, oh, I made.
1: Of um, I probably made 50 at least.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. okay. I was going to ask because I mean, you obviously did play viola, so that was. That yeah. Stuff that
1: no, I I, pr- I probably make a, a viola or two every year. Just depends on what commissions come along. And viola is something that seems to be ripe for innovation, and violas are much more open-minded
0: about... Oh, really? There's a different culture with Yeah,
1: the viola isn't so standardized as the violin. There's a lot of different sizes, and there's real ergonomic problems with viola playing. You've got this... It's quite a bit bigger, right? Yeah, I mean... I mean, a a cello is much bigger, but no one would try and (laughs) stick (laughs) it under their chin. That's the the trouble, but here you've got this um, intrinsically awkward playing position, and the you know, uh, um, it really does make sense to get rid of right. some of the wood here. Right. It does
0: make sense to make it lighter. Sure, they're much more grateful, I'm sure, yeah.
1: when you... Yeah. You know. um, so, um, but they aren't locked into this single size, single shape. So I, I think the, the the viola, the violas tend to be a pleasure that way. They're not. They're really much more open-minded so right. far.
0: Right. Okay, well, before... before I do want to get over there and, and, and talk about mm-hmm. this, but before I do... Um Anything else? Did I miss anything? Is there anything that you? you <laughs> you've, uh, I've had a really good time talking to you, but I I want to make sure that I haven't. Oh,
1: uh, well, we could talk anything. for a week
0: about things. I, I nothing comes to mind right now. I didn't ask you about the whole varnish thing and the aesthetic, the aesthetic business. I mean that that's one of these things again. If you're on the outside. Uh, looking in, you sometimes hear people say, "Oh, you know, this varnish is, oh, is it, so fantastic." It
1: was, it was c- it. the varnish was considered the most plausible secret for a long time. It was the varnish
0: right. that's what made them
1: um, old Italians what they were. And I think these, these are
0: these are, of course, violins, not not old Italian people. Old are Italians they? are <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, to the best of my knowledge, are not varnish. Old Italian varnish was
1: was another. Um, it was like oriental lacquer, this thing people didn't know how to make and spent centuries trying to copy. I, I don't know whether you know about that or, oriental lacquer. which no, was I was an amazing substance they used for lacquering bowls and cabinets and all sorts of things, and no one knew how it was done. It was a very tightly protected secret, you know, and you had to do it um, under very controlled conditions, and arguably a lot of um, European varnish making was trying to imitate this. Um, a, a case was made by a friend of mine, Christian Arvey. Um, now, well, but anyway, there, it was discovered in the end to be a, the, the, the sap of a single bush. Uh, you know, very prosaic <laughs> solution, but and a marvelous substance. But it was toxic to most people. So, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm sure there's interesting books written about that. But violin varnish is a similar thing. It was oh, it was so beautiful. I mean. Um, these old instruments are kind of worn down with these colors worn off, the spectacular effects. Um, and so there was a search for the Italian varnish. And um, I, I, I met a researcher called Gary Bass, who, who was one of the people who tracked it down to, I think, the reasonable answers. And he was in Cremona, it must be 85, 84, 83, something like that. And. Um, he and others, I mean, it turned out to be just varnish and, um, you know, <laughs> linseed oil and <laughs> tree <laughs> resin a big anticlimax, like like so many of these things. <laughs> um, but, you know, for a long time, everything we loved and didn't understand about violins was attributed to the varnish. And then when they discovered what the varnish was, oh, but there's this ground underneath it of some crystalline substance, you know, and then there's yeah. a, a little stampede towards, you know, Pozzolani cement and silicates and... Um, b- but that, that's just the history of materials, and I think we pretty much know what they're doing. And Now, trying to make something look like it's old is, is something quite different. Um, but the thing about old violins is it has this very particular kind of beauty that you don't see anywhere else, because I don't think other wooden artifacts were varnished with these transparent varnishes that wore off in, in certain ways right. off of figured wood. I mean, this is this absolutely glorious effect, um, and it's such, a, it's such a perfect metaphor for the sound in a certain way, this richness, this depth, this light, this sparkle. Um, I mean, if there's ever a placebo effect <laughs> to put under your chin, I mean, there's good right. reasons why right. we love them so much. And so, of course, as a maker, you say, well, how can I do that? In which case, you're not really imitating Strat or Guanera, you're imitating what time did to their work. Right. Um, and then one of the the big questions for me is okay, if those kind of effects are beautiful, more so than let's say a straight coat of red or orange varnish, which is how they looked at the beginning and how a lot of makers like to do it now. Let's do something straightforward and honest rather than faking or antiquing. Right. Um, but I want to say there, there there must be other options. I mean. Um, all sorts of artworks, you know, ceramics, um, sculptures, have textured surfaces, have artificial surfaces in a way, have surfaces that refer to the, the passage of time. You look, at, I mean, Giacometti is one of my favorite sculptures. I mean, you look at one of his pieces, it could be dug out of an right. archeological site. Um, there's no reason in principle why we shouldn't make our violins look in particular ways artificially. Right. It's, um, but that's a. So, what would the what would a new aesthetics be? Something that's informed by the beauty maybe of old ones, but is of our time. Uh, you know, to be it's very hard to just invent something. I think it'll,
0: it will emerge. Nuts, yeah, okay. um, hopefully. Anyway. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, would it look more like an iPhone? Would it be a very clean, modern, minimalist? Would it be, you know, who knows? Um, but the main thing is people have got to start doing it and competing with each other to, <laughs> right. to do it better before... And, and living in the modern world, I mean, effectively, right? I yeah. Know. Well, w- yeah, ver- we're living in the violin world in the modern <laughs> world. It's this <laughs> kind of protected <laughs> cocoon here. So um, a lot of violinists aren't especially visual people. They're, it's not what they're interested hmm. in. I mean, there are some who are acutely aware of... Right, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about
0: that. Of course, they're, they're, they're oral with... The yeah, a- there's a-
1: plenty of... Players will say, "I don't care what it looks like. I just want it to sound good." But right. for me, it's like, um, you know, do you want your couch to look good or be comfortable? Make you know, decide. You <laughs> well, actually, why not have both? both? You know, there's no <laughs> real contradiction. Sure. So those are, um, and I, I, mean, I, I kind of like. Um, I mean, this is something Alex and I came up with. is is kind of modern. is kind of old. is it, it, um,
0: How has it been, been received, or has it, has it had a chance to have been received uh, very much? Because um, I know you were critical about it. And so we forth.
1: took it to mondo music. It wasn't ready to have players playing it, but there's very good response. And we um, there's a app. Let me see. It's an app that Alex developed to control this, which has got a lot of because ex- you're going to need an interface, and it's going to be this. Um, and what it's going to cool. do is have a library of, you know, different instruments you've measured and you can, <laughs> you know, you know um, get different, slightly different sounds. And um, was, he also developed it as a tool for um, um, displaying instruments. Oops, let me see That's how to do, do this. No, okay, so um, he, he realized that this could be great for actually just pictures of instruments, which are normally shown as two-dimensional photographs, but you should probably uh, uh, hold it up as well. (laughs) That
0: is really cool.
1: So you can, um, nobody else
0: gets to see it, but I I think it's, you can actually
1: (laughs) rotate the violin. And this was a big, uh, This got a lot of interest, you know, for websites, for violin auctions, it could be the way to show and even, and, and, and just as fun, um, violin makers, when they look at, uh, my fingers are a little damp, I think. Oh yeah are always rocking instruments back and forth to see the reflection of the wood, and you can see... Oh, wow. Um, you get some of the the depth of the instrument by doing that. Um, so he did a beautiful job with that. Wow. So this is part of the Digital Violin Project, but also as other possibilities for... You know, um, old violins are, are spectacularly beautiful objects. They're difficult to represent in two dimensions and get the feel across... And there's a lot of, there's some beautiful books doing it, but they're very expensive. You know, you can pay $600, $700. I mean, mm-hmm. It's a niche market. Mm-hmm. How, much is,
0: how much is the app? Just curiosity, Is it a free app?
1: Or? Oh, this app will come out probably for 99 cents, and then there'll be a subscription for, I don't know what, 30 a year, and you can... Cool. But th- that's to be,
0: that's, well, it, it should be out um, anytime soon. It's not easy getting an app on, anyway. That's, that's that's our own problem. So, <laughs> <laughs> getting it on what the iStore? Yeah, well, just you have to go through all this. Really? Know. Well, it's hmm. maybe maybe it's not. Maybe I just have the wrong people working on it. But that's a whole different. Well, the, the blessing of having a couple of
1: young guys here who know this field is. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe I'll move to An Armor. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, Alex has uh, been in the design world, and there they seem to be yeah. know know what to do next in that regard. Useful. Um, Very useful. Yeah. So, but, so th- this will be con controlled through this and, and a stomp box on the, um,
0: with the electronics. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. So, and, 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 uh, well, the future looks, looks awfully bright for you and goes off in many different directions, which is presumably exactly the way you want it to be. I enjoy, I enjoy, um, coming at things from different
1: directions. I, um, I enjoy researching violins. I enjoy writing about violins. I took right. up writing to get away from violin making um to have an area where things weren't so regimented. And of course, you end up writing about <laughs> what you know about. And I. Oh, you also write fiction, though, right? Yeah, I d- I've done a little, and I've, I'm actually um, just starting a nonfiction book on the violin world from the inside. Cause I, oh, really? Yeah. Um, well, that's gonna make you popular. I, I don't know what it'll make me popular, <laughs> but it'll. Um, <laughs> um, it, I've written many articles about the art and science of the violin and, and, right, um, sure. and profiles. There's so many interesting people, researchers, fascinating people, and just so different from the, again, what one might think of from the stereotypes. Um, um, players, makers, I mean, just interesting lives that I don't think have been covered. Um, and, I, you know, there's so many, um, from the writer's point of view, Almost every area of the world has been covered by some really good writers. Right. But violin making,
0: I don't think, <laughs> yes.
1: is, is fairly open territory. So
0: So when, when are you going to finish that?
1: Oh, I'm just looking for... I've, I've just got, been talking to an agent um, the last few days and we'll see if we can get a book contract. Great go from there
0: best of luck i'm sure i thank will you. certainly be on the lookout for it and i'm sure many other people will be as well yeah, well thank you well at least there'll be an ebook if it didn't <laughs> <laughs> well it's the modern age isn't that wonderful um yeah anyway thanks a lot it was wonderful talking to you I a great really, pleasure i really enjoyed it i hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast as mentioned at the outset This conversation is also available both as an individual e-book and as part of the e-book and paperback Conversations About Anthropology and Sociology, along with separate discussions with Fred Gittleman, Mark Maslin, Ian Stewart, and Franz Duvall. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.